If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with a new season and a new case. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. More than 30 years later, is it still possible to get to the truth? And who gets to tell it? Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Jenna here, and I'm excited to share with you one of my favorite podcasts, which recently came back for its sixth season, The Uncertain Hour. The Uncertain Hour is an award-winning podcast from Marketplace, where host Chrissy Clark dives into the obscure policies and forgotten histories that explain who gets ahead in the U.S. and who gets left behind. And if that doesn't sound fascinating enough, the series was featured on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. This season, Chrissy investigates the for-profit companies that run many of America's welfare offices and how they're cashing in on work requirements for welfare recipients. Listen to The Uncertain Hour wherever you get your podcasts. In many ways, being a queer kid in high school isn't all that different from when Sakia attended Westside High in 2003. And that's in both so-called red and blue states. This year, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy signed an executive order declaring the state a, quote, safe haven for anyone seeking gender-affirming care. His order is a direct response to the actions of conservative governors like Texas's Greg Abbott, who is attempting to criminalize parents seeking care for transgender children. At the same time, suburban New Jersey school districts like Manalapan English Town, Middletown, and Marlboro adopted policies to effectively out trans and gender nonconforming students to their parents. The future of trans kids in Texas is still at stake as Texas Governor Greg Abbott's directive asking for prompt and thorough investigations into anyone under 18 receiving gender-affirming care has been temporarily blocked. Now, families in need of this life-saving treatment have been targeted, and the trans community is once again stepping up to help protect their rights. We spoke to healthcare chaplain Reverend Remington Olivia Johnson, who breaks down the impact of this anti-trans order and what can be done to help the trans community. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. I mean, given... It's good to talk with you. It's not a super fun time in Texas, but um, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. A little over a year ago, I had a chance to interview Reverend Remington Olivia Johnson, a trans rights activist and healthcare chaplain for the PBS online series First Person. Johnson, who's based in Texas, was fighting against an executive order from Governor Greg Abbott that directs the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to treat parents or guardians of transgender children receiving medically necessary gender-affirming care as potential abusers. Thus allowing parents, guardians, and their doctors to be investigated, prosecuted, and even punished. The order also encouraged community members to feel empowered to surveil or spy on families with transgender children. But Abbott's executive order in Texas was hardly the only piece of anti-LGBTQ legislation coming out of states with conservative governors and national organizations 
were taking notice. The last several years, we have seen a rise in anti-LGBTQ legislative action. The ACLU is tracking 491 of what it calls anti-LGBTQ bills in the U.S. that have either passed or are being considered. America's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer civil rights group has decided, declared rather, a state of emergency for the people in the LGBTQ plus community. Of those 491 bills in the 2023 legislative session, 228 targeted schools and education. According to the ACLU, the proposed bills aim to ban or restrict access to books that include LGBTQ plus people, themes, or topics prevent or censor discussions of LGBTQ plus people in school, force school staff to out LGBTQ plus students, not allow teachers and staff to call transgender students by their chosen pronouns, prevent transgender and non-binary students from using the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity, prevent transgender students from participating in school sports, restrict and prevent transgender students from receiving gender-affirming care and punishing supportive parents. All this, even with a string of monumental victories over the past 20 years. Same-sex marriage is now legal all across the U.S. The policy known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell is now officially history. Tammy Baldwin became the first openly gay person elected to the Senate. Also making history, Kim Petras and Sam Smith becoming the first openly trans woman and non-binary artist to win Grammys for... Petras and Smith, both born in 1992, are popular among Gen Z listeners, folks born between 1997 and 2012. A 2021 Gallup poll found nearly one in six adult Gen Zers identify as queer. And while they may live in a time of increased visibility for the LGBTQ plus community, their lived experiences don't necessarily reflect the progress that's been made in the past few decades. According to the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, an organization that conducts surveys every other year of LGBTQ plus inclusion and awareness in K-12 education, since they began keeping track in 1999, not much has changed for queer students in the past 20 years. The group found that in 2019, over 86% of LGBTQ plus identifying students surveyed reported feeling unsafe in school due to harassment or assault. And the network found 57% of those harassment or assault incidents went unreported due to a climate of inaction or even victim blaming by the school administrators. They also found that this type of discrimination at school results in lower GPAs, lower class attendance, and lower overall well-being. So it makes sense that some educators, like Reed Gashora, current mayor of Trenton, New Jersey, and former state legislator and former professor at the College of New Jersey, are now saying that openly discussing and highlighting the contributions of LGBTQ plus people in the classroom helps all students understand how dynamic the American population truly is. I think it's important that uh, we hear the, the colorful story of um, gays, how they fit into history, and uh, and led certainly a charge in civil rights to make sure that they were counted. 
In 2019, Geshore successfully lobbied and got Governor Phil Murphy to sign an LGBTQ plus inclusive curriculum. The new law would require New Jersey public schools to implement an LGBTQ plus curriculum for students grades 5 through 12, making New Jersey the second state to do so after California. Mayor Gashora says this is not about creating a separate subject for kids. It's intended to be woven in. Uh, for instance, the civil rights struggle should definitely be taught in, in, uh, in American classrooms uh, for the, the purposes of, of just the racial divide that we have in this country and that we continue to have. But at the same time, you can weave in uh, the LGBT experience. They have their own civil rights experience um, when it came to Stonewall and being allowed to congregate in the same public spaces were illegal at one point, not only in this state, but in this country. So it's, it's a jumping point. We hear about uh, plenty of uh, uh, heroes and, and sheroes that have been uh, at the forefront of leadership battles. And Harvey Milk comes to mind as one of them. And, uh, uh, and it ended up in his death as well. Uh, just the fact that he was uh, a gay American uh, on city council in San Francisco. He says he was actually inspired to follow California's lead after teaching a class at the College of New Jersey on LGBTQ plus politics. Here are students that were interested in the LGBT experience, never heard of Stonewall, never heard of Harvey Milk. And then their horizons were that much broader by the end of uh, the semester. Um, So it is really important uh, to have that inclusivity uh, in the curriculum. It's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody's trying to force a subject down anybody's throat. But when it is relevant, it should be brought up. And uh, so that someone like Sakia could identify with the leader, such as uh, Harvey Milk, or um, identify with the struggles um, that transpired during Stonewall in 1969, that uh, gay youth are still saying they're having those struggles within their own families, within their own community. And I think over time, as we expose all generations and all uh, students and parents to the LGBT experience, they'll be able to say, I get it. I get where that person's coming from. I still want to embrace them. I still want to love them at the end of the day. But getting fellow legislators in the state house to agree was no cakewalk. All legislation is uh, is a fight to some degree, and this was particularly challenging. Uh, I am proud that uh, in the end, uh, many Republicans and conservatives even voted for it. Um, and uh, but it was a learning curve for some, and uh, they had to revisit the importance of of the reasons why we want uh, inclusivity for gays, especially since uh, bullying is so rampant uh, in the state, especially since uh, the number one cause of of teen suicides are because uh, uh, they they self-identify as as gay and isolated from the rest of the community and even in their families. Mayor Gashora adds that once his conservative colleagues were able to take partisan rancor out of the discussion, they were able to see the issue of LGBTQ plus inclusivity in a much more personal way. I think they had to find out that they actually had gay members in their families 
and talk to them and and try to understand how they felt. And um, uh, I I recall a number of my colleagues telling me that they they had never considered their views. They always felt that their relative was um, a nice person, <laughs> but they happened to be gay, and uh, they had to do that one step further to analyze uh, how do you uh, make sure that LGBT youth and uh, uh, persons are, as individuals, are protected in society. And this is one way to just open up the curriculum to make sure that when it's, um, when it's relevant, uh, the LGBT experience should be included in the curriculum. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids, to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. So I wanted to speak with an educator who had firsthand experience in trying to implement a more inclusive curriculum. My name is Kate Oakson, uh, she, her. I actually work at Rumson Fairhaven Regional High School where I've been an art teacher, um, studio art teacher, and sometimes art history for the last 21 years. Kate is also the co-founder of Make It Better for Youth, a nonprofit devoted to improving outcomes for queer youth in Monmouth County, New Jersey. She says the law created a mandate that allows teachers to directly or indirectly bring up queer issues in organic ways. And that might live in perhaps health classes or um, in fifth grade when we're learning about certain kinds of family structures or whatever. Um, What it does allow us to do is then talk about individual artists, creators, engineers, um, you know, anybody who's sort of developed and invented something and the role that their personal life has played in that, which we often do when we're talking about perhaps cisgender, heterosexual, white men. We're not trying to put people in a position where they're engaging in things that are uncomfortable because we want to make them uncomfortable. But we really have to start talking about what it means to have equitable practices, what it means in terms of student outcomes to say the right thing, the correct thing. She says it's important to let lessons that include visibility and equality flow naturally, or else you end up with an incredibly limited view of any social issue. We get what we call the heroes and holidays approach, which is where we look at one person and the one person becomes a whole totem, as opposed to depth and breadth and more complex conversation. For example, Kate says she once engaged her class in a thought experiment about inclusivity that used a popular LGBTQ plus issue, and yet she never mentioned a queer person. 
She says her goal was getting the kids to critically think about an experience someone might have that could inspire them to see the world through a different perspective. If we don't have gender-neutral bathrooms, if we don't have ramps in certain places, if we don't have uh, lighting or other uh, tactile signaling for people who are not um, don't have 100% of their vision, like, what are we saying? Who's welcome here? And they took that to a place of critical questioning to say, oh, we're saying all of these people. And they like the list of people that we are saying don't belong here is far longer than the list of people that do belong here. Like, how do we change that? But to make a school a safe space, curriculums and classroom instructions are only one piece of the puzzle. The day-to-day decisions made by school administrators can play a monumental role in how queer students can perceive acceptance in their community. When Sakia was murdered in 2003, the reaction or inaction of the administration at Westside High School still feels raw for many of her peers. This was so long, principal, like he wasn't supportive of it. He, y'all gonna be in school, you walk out, you get in trouble. They should cancel school. Like, it was no reason for anybody to be there. As recollected by the former Westside students I spoke with, in the aftermath of Sakia's murder, there was little space for their grief, even with her gravesite being within view of classrooms as students finished out the school year. According to the Gay City News, the year of her murder, students called for a moment of silence in honor of Sakia, but were denied by the school administration, something that was later disputed by school officials. Grief was not a new phenomena for the students at Westside. Earlier that year, a 17-year-old named Lillian Spann was killed by a stray bullet while waiting for a bus. And when classes resumed in the following fall of 2003, a 14-year-old, Alonzo Manny Brown, was killed in a mugging on his walk home from school. In 2023, a logical question might be, Where were the counselors? Where are the professionals who can help these kids navigate the mental health crisis that much traumatic loss must have incurred? Unfortunately, our reporting found that the likelihood of students, like Sakia's friends at Westside High in 2003, receiving mental health support simply wasn't that good. In the U.S., At the dawn of the millennium, on average, there were 478 students per counselor present in the public schools. That's nearly double the 250 to 1 ratio recommended by the American School Counselor Association. A fact that may help explain why Newark's Westside High decided to continue with school, as planned, the day after Sakia's murder. However, in the 20 years since, A study by New Jersey Policy Perspective, a progressive think tank, found that access to mental health professionals for Black students in New Jersey has still managed to decrease from 10.3 per thousand students in 2008 to 8.5 per thousand students in 2020. If you're keeping track, that's a decrease of nearly 18%. After Sakia's funeral, when members of the community gathered the teens at the Essex County Gymnasium to give a safe space to process their grief, the kids made their feelings known. 
not soon after we got them settled in, <laughs> Sharp James, the then mayor, came in and decided this was a point where he was going to have a word. And apparently the kids were pissed that no support had shown up at the school, nothing had been said, and that they had they were kind of, I think what I had heard, that they were kind of being penalized for coming to the funeral. That's Kevin Taylor, the writer you might remember from our first episode, who lived down the block from where Sakia was murdered. It was like, nope, we're not closing school. So if you miss a day, you've missed a day. And it was like, one of our classmates got murdered. And it's on the news, right? And so they, they were upset about it because they, they, they could have just made it a city holiday or a school holiday. He could have done something to indemnify them for the day and didn't. And um, in what may be the single most powerful action I've ever seen a collective group of people do, He stood in front of them and started to talk. When he clicked the mic on, they stood up and walked out. And I mean, every single one, hundreds of kids walked out. And the funny part was to realize that they just stood in the the lobby and outside. They weren't leaving. They just weren't going to listen to him talk. While Mayor James's words went unheard by the students, others in the room were listening for news of his proposed LGBTQ youth center. By October of 2003, word of the inaction from City Hall reached the press, and activist Laquetta Nelson was quoted in The Advocate saying, quote, that was lip service, straight up. I wrote him a letter, he did answer the letter, and he basically said the same thing that he'd been saying all along, which was nothing. As the first anniversary of Sakia's murder approached, all that came from City Hall was the announcement of a, quote, no-name calling day in Newark schools. And finally, permission for the students at Westside High to have their moment of silence for Sakia. In the end, it wasn't until October 2013, the end of Cory Booker's term as mayor, that Newark finally got a center for queer kids to go to. So, you know, you had different politicians jumping in and out of this at different times. Um, And so... um, For me, I felt like I needed to do my part to make sure that that happened, that the center was created, and that some sort of safe space existed in the city. And it was, you know, to me, shameful that it took 10 years of grassroots organizing, grassroots fundraising. And so, you know, at some point I lent my voice and my volunteering to do what I could to make sure that once the center was created, that it stayed a permanent part of the city of Newark. Today, the Newark LGBTQ Center, which Beatrice Simpkins is the executive director, offers everything from support groups to yoga, game and craft nights, a monthly dinner to help the community, and even an annual film festival. The center, is part of an ever-growing footprint of Newark's queer community, no longer relegated to nightlife venues. Rutgers Newark offers a variety of services for its many LGBTQ students, as well as providing support to the Newark Queer Oral History Project, a program devoted to recording the queer history of the city in the words of the people who lived it firsthand. Just a few blocks from the intersection of Broad and Market sits Project WOW, or Web Outreach Works Youth Center. It's part of the Pride Center of Newark, a project of the North Jersey Community Research Initiative, 
which offers a drop-in creative space for the community, as well as medical and behavioral health services. Headed up by none other than Kevin Taylor, as soon as you walk up to the door, you'll be greeted by a larger-than-life photo of Sakia. When we opened the WOW Community Center, we were, you know, our um, CEO, Brian McGovern, was like, I want something on the windows, you know. Uh, then Brian said, I want it to look like Newark, and Newark is black. So I thought, um, Sakia Gunn. And so, um, uh, as you will note, the outside of the center just has their faces about five feet tall. They're pretty large physical uh images. And then once you come in, there are posters that are about, you know, 24 by 36 with pictures of them each telling their stories. Because um, so many times in the African-American experience, Jenna, you know this, uh, people say, well, I ain't know about that. How come I ain't know about that? How come I ain't know about that? You know? Kevin says it's essential for the Queer Friendly Community Center to boldly highlight and celebrate the lives of LGBTQ plus people living, but also those that were lost like Sakia. Because, he says, the days of living in the margins are over. The black community don't believe in it. Baby, you don't, don't talk to me about gays and black and black folk when I can go into any black church in any black city, any black where, and find a black queen singing lead or, or directing the choir or preaching the sermon. I don't want to hear from anyone because I get the dog whistle politics of it. I get the whole, we don't do that. I get it. I get it. He says visitors to the WOW Center are offered numerous opportunities to learn not only of Sakia's story, but other notable queer people of color, also from Newark and the surrounding area. Because as Kevin points out, it might be the only place that they can get that information. And so we start that conversation. Are they yeah. teaching it in your schools? No. We have, because of the dearth of, thir- I mean, the, the, the breadth of 13 to 24, we also have college students who come in who didn't heard about it at Rutgers or at Essex County College and have heard it in other classes and courses. It is a Especially as we talk about, you know, uh, kind of the value of the child's body when we don't or do or don't talk about mass shootings. It's like another way that we need to be protective of our young people. And the fact that we're not having that conversation, you know, in Newark and some of those classrooms is problematic, you know, especially in this day and age of parents who don't want anything taught to their kids except that they do it and then they don't want to do it. Part of the critical importance of sharing not just LGBTQ plus stories and history is localizing the stories as much as possible. Not only is it easier for many of the young people the center serves to see themselves truly reflected, but also to understand the lack of local resources and supportive spaces that also played a huge role in Sakia's murder. At the end of the day, some people just wanted the quickness of com- of community, right? To be able to get on the train at four stops out of Newark. You're at Christopher Street. You come up, you're at the hangar. You come up, you're on a pier. You come up. And so the whole idea of it was, man, build something. Why would I build something here? Well, right across the street, right across the bridge, right through the tunnel is everything. And so, you know, New York, New York was a harder pill to swallow because it wasn't just a gay club. It was a whole gay community. The whole gay culture could be gay in the daylight, in the rain, gay in the bar and the nightclub. Like, why does Sakia have to go there? And then what do we build for Sakia's friends? Because we've seen them now. We think they're all old like us and they got all the resources they need to go across the street. And we realize that there are children and they are here and they are going to the pier at midnight to, to build community. 
The lack of queer-affirming social gathering spaces in Newark is also a point of frustration for Beatrice as well. Something she'd like to see change even if Newark sits in the shadow of New York City. We still need our own spaces because when we encounter racism and oppression and systems and entertainment venues and restaurants or wherever we go, in the street, on the sidewalk, in institutions like social service agencies, human service agencies, government agencies, you know, there's a reason why this work still needs to be done. Because as much as we want to think that we've turned the corner on equality and everybody's equal, that is not the case. She says Newark briefly had a safe space in the form of Murphy's Tavern, where Black queer people, particularly femmes, could feel safe. If anybody came in there to carry on, the whole bar would turn out. (laughs) So we felt like we were good. Um, Now, did we experience and hear stories about people being harassed on the way home? Yes, we did. Uh, you know, especially trans trans women being attacked or harassed, we sure did. Uh, we had our own buddy systems, right? We gave people rides home from the different parties that would be occurring. Um, so we, we, you know, we tried to protect ourselves, especially if we know the girls were going into a neighborhood or back home into a neighborhood where, you know, there's there's some risk involved. Murphy's Tavern was a safe social gathering spot in downtown Newark for LGBTQ plus people from 1967 until the early 2000s when it was demolished to make way for the new Prudential Center, a story I covered as a new reporter in 2004. Mayor James described Newark as a city not only ready, but eager to embrace hockey. Today, and most importantly, we officially welcome the Devils to New Jersey's largest city, Newark. Beatrice says with the loss of just one bar like Murphy's, it's imperative that Newark create LGBTQ plus socializing safe spaces as part of its economic development. Why can't we have economic sustainability right here? Why are we taking our money and going to another city that that money never comes back to us? It, it, there's no you know, compounding of that investment. It's just, here, take our money. (laughs) You're not going to give us back a darn thing. Great. No, it's not. You know, we have to be better consumers. We have to be more educated consumers. We have to be more demanding consumers. And one, one thing I demand as an LGBTQ person is that we have a distinct presence, visibility, neighborhood where I can go to dinner, I can want to go dancing, In addition to socializing, Kevin Taylor says at times it has been a struggle to ensure that even in LGBTQ plus history, the fullness of the rainbow is truly being represented year round. I get concerned that if we just say LGBTQ history and it's it's truncated like that, that so many people of color will will get left out of the rainbow. It's June. Teach pride. You know, but this is this is Marsha P. Johnson's birthday, but this is the day Sakia Gunn was murdered. Kevin already has put plans into action to mark Sakia Gunn's story. On the 20th anniversary this year, he and Beatrice of the LGBTQ Pride Center organized a march from the corner of Broad and Market to the steps of City Hall to demand that change that has yet to fully arrive to LGBTQ plus people in Newark 
The center also aired a special showing of the documentary film Dreams Deferred, the Sakia gun story, for anyone to stop by and see. But perhaps most importantly, on May 11th of 2023, at 5.11 p.m., a small group of supporters, community members, and Sakia's friends stepped outside to hold a moment of silence in honor of the life lost and speak and reflect on their truths of how the loss affected them. It is our assignment to live on purpose with purpose. And if you can't do it for you, do it for Sakia Gunn. Say her name! Say her name! Say her name! Beatrice says while she is grateful for the Newark Pride Center and Project WOW for the independent work they've done serving queer kids and young adults, she wants and expects more from the city when it comes to LGBTQ plus visibility. She wants acknowledgement. If you ride around the city of Newark, you see no visible recording or, or honoring of LGBTQ people at all. So there are statues. There's different kinds of statues, different people. There's no statue of, you know, anybody who's an LGBTQ leader. We just lost James Creedle. Um, how about let's do a memorial for him? That's people can see visibility. Where's our neighborhood? You know, where's the big giant flag that flies all the time, not just during Pride season? You know, where, where is that? After Broad and Market was co-produced by the WNET groups Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead reporter, producer, and host. Aaron McIntyre is the executive producer. Daniel Greenberg is the executive in charge of production. Juleka Lantigua is the series editor. Paulina Velasco is the managing editor. Shant Alexander is the associate producer. Cindy Rodriguez and Chelsea Rugg are producers. Michelle Baker is an associate producer. Elizabeth Nakano mixed this episode. Kate Gallagher is the fact checker. Kojin Tashiro is lead sound designer. Cover art designed by Karen Brazell. Original mural art by Tatiana Vazlalizade. The legal consultants are Marta Castang and Matt Clark. For Chasing the Dream, Eugenia Harvey is the executive producer. Maria Stoyan is the senior producer. Catherine Carpenter is a producer, and Shannon Damiano is the production assistant. Audience engagement provided by Lindsay Horvitz. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation, with additional funding from Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III.